In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Our Lord's turn toward Jerusalem in the Gospel lesson signals the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise. To see why, we have to go back to the Old Testament, not as it is in our Bibles, but as it would have been read in the synagogues of ancient Judea. There, we would see the books of the Old Testament scrolls arrayed in their ancient order of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And there, at the end of the final scroll, the last words of the scriptures would have been those of a foreign king, of Cyrus of Persia, stirred by the Lord to pronounce to his empire the end of the Jewish captivity. Quote, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. We know from reading the latter prophets, especially Zechariah and Malachi, that the return from captivity did not restore the kingdom to its former glory. Neither did the people who returned from exile actually turn away from their former sins to the anxious frustration of the priests and rulers of the time. They had returned, but they had not turned from their old ways. The people had come back, but they were still not yet home. By the time of Christ, the faithful in Jerusalem and in the synagogues each Sabbath would have sat for centuries with those final words of the scriptures, and with them a persistent set of questions. When would God send the king promised in the prophets to usher the restoration of Israel? Had they not gone up and rebuilt Jerusalem? Why then, after their homecoming, had the place not yet become home again? By pronouncing to the disciples that it was now time to go up to Jerusalem, Jesus signals and inaugurates a pilgrimage to restore what had long been missing. The place had been rebuilt, but the person whose presence made the place what it was meant to be, had not yet returned. Now, though, the Lord would return to his chosen temple home among his ancient chosen people. He would go to make all things new, and he would invite his disciples to join him on his pilgrimage and to participate in his work. But the character of that pilgrimage becomes immediately clear with Jesus' very next words. Quote, For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Jesus anticipates his rejection in Jerusalem, a rejection that will render perpetually incomplete the old Jerusalem, and all that it represents. In a terrible irony, 
those who waited upon the fulfillment of the promise will put to death the one who comes to fulfill the promise. Yet that rejection will also signal the establishment of something new, a new Jerusalem, constituted in Christ himself. But this is the point at which the disciples' understanding of what Jesus is saying comes suddenly to a halt. Until Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, they cannot see what it really means to go up to Jerusalem. Until after the resurrection, the disciples will not be able to see and to understand what he means in this moment and how it can be that redemption and glory must come through suffering and death. And yet, to their credit, though they do not yet see, even so, they still follow. To follow Jesus up to Jerusalem means to partake of his passion in the confident hope of partaking in his resurrection. The pilgrimage to the cross and the empty tomb, those central events of human history, is a formational journey following after the example of Christ's sacrificial love. As Jesus goes, down to lay down, goes to lay down his life and to rise again, the disciples will likewise be called to follow him as imitators of that self-giving love. Jesus makes this clear earlier in St. Luke's Gospel when he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, in St. John's Gospel, he says to the disciples, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this the world will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And finally, as he says a little further, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In the epistle lesson, St. Paul elaborates on this connection by basing the entire Christian life on the receiving and the giving of Christ's sacrificial love. Without it, no spiritual gift or authority, no theological insight or mystical understanding, no act of service or activist cause is worth anything. All depends on growth in the love of Christ, and the love of Christ means the embracing of the cross. As St. Paul writes in his hymn to love, Love suffers long and is kind. Love presupposes the arduous difficulty of loving at all, of encountering resistance and rejection in love, and yet remains present in that suffering with a firm kindness, a resolute purpose. Love abstains from comparison, from turning itself to the left or the right to seek some other world to follow, laying aside notions of better or worse, high or low, worthy or unworthy. Love always seeks the best and lays down its life to provide the good for the other. Love commits in this way to the burden of forgiveness, a work that is as heavy as the cross. It calls us to forgive from our hearts everyone for everything, 
to release them from what binds them for our sake, to pray for their salvation on the day of judgment. Every step of growth in this kind of love is one step farther along the pilgrimage with Christ to the Jerusalem that he is making. St. Paul's hymn to love is a list of the ways that love is modeled after the example of Christ's passion. Love calls us to carry a cross with Christ and then to die on it with everything that is ours, that we might rise to pass freely through this world with the hopeful vision of the world to come set before us, the world of renewal, the world in which Jesus is making all things new. This high calling to sacrificial love, however, reveals first how we are not yet ready to love like Jesus. And this is why we need Lent. Lent calls us back to the truth that before we can become those who join in Christ's redemptive work, we need to be made again into the people who, with repentance, receive Jesus as he goes up to Jerusalem. We must first acknowledge that we are those who rejected him, who scourged him, and who put him to death. And only by remembering that we are those by whom and for whom the Lamb of God was slain can we begin to receive the healing and redemption that alone make possible our participation in his mission. Once we have remembered and once we have received again his love in the midst of our profound unloveliness, we are then called to bear witness in our words and actions to that mission of love by denying ourselves, by being willing to offer all in self-giving love to imitate our Lord. Only then does Christ's pilgrimage become our pilgrimage. To keep a good Lent is not to concoct a good Lent. It is to receive the Lenten pilgrimage of Jesus himself. Only then can we receive the grace again of redemptive love, which transfigures us and makes us bearers of that love to others. Lent is a suffering bridled by hope, as is our life on the pilgrim trail through this world. On that trail, we are formed in love for God and for one another. To keep a good Lent is to grow in love, because love is the life of God and the character of the resurrection. Lent calls us to die to all that is not love and to be raised again to all that is love. Like the disciples, only through this dying and rising can we begin to understand, and only then can we see the Lord cheerfully go to suffering and keep his promise made to Abraham, his children, and to all who are made to share of one family in Christ. Love enables us to see. To be loved of God makes us able to know. As St. Paul says, then we will know, even as we are fully known. As we are perfected in love, we will see the cross as the end of all things in this world. 
and we will see what is our cross to bear. But then we will begin to see what is waiting just beyond the cross. We will begin to see the new Jerusalem and the renewed creation already among us and drawing us into its fullness. The journey back from exile, the journey into communion, the Lenten journey of the Christian life will one day be complete. It has a destination. And then, all at once, and with the Lord, we will be home at last. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.